So does everybody know the commercial slogan, what's in your wallet? Who's it by? Man, some of those things work. <laughs> when everyone everywhere can just know instantly. Uh, yeah, it, it's, that's Capital One. What do you think they mean when they say what's in your wallet? What are they trying to get at? They obviously want their card in your wallet so that they're taking your money on all their interest rate. But beyond that, that's what they really want. What are they trying to say to you? Because that's too blunt. They will never tell you how much they desperately want your money and hope that you go over each month and hope that you overextend yourself. That's their real dream. That's like Christmas for credit. But um, no. besides that, what, what are they really asking when they say, what's in your wallet? That you're actually not, you're not of the... Okay, okay, right, a status thing. What's in your wallet? Oh, you only have American Express, not Capital One. Right, it could be that. I see that. What else? Any other ideas? What are they asking you? What do you think, Sally? I think you're planting a seed about what, whether you think that you're doing well or not. Mm. In other words, well, well mm. I don't have that card in my wallet, so I'm not doing well. I would do better if I had it. Yeah, it's like the guy who says, I only carry hundreds, right? Like, what's in your money clip? It's like a capacity for wealth. Do you have a lot of wealth in your wallet? And they're promising that they'll help you. They'll give you as many huge credit limits as you would like to spend all their money and then be in debt to them forever. They love that, that's fine. You can probably tell that I don't like credit. Don't live on it, please. You use it if you need to, pay it off. Don't live on it, don't let it own you because it will own you. It, it's easy to get under that, uh, that rock and have to climb out. Um, but they're asking kind of, what are you worth? Do you have something in your wallet? Do you have a card that you can just throw down and buy a motorcycle? You know, throw down and go on vacation to, is it St. Thomas? Where are we going soon? <laughs> Yes? Right, right. Either there is a card in your pocket or a bank account that can cover that, or like many, you just overextend yourself and use someone else's money to go do it. But this is not a sermon about credit. It's turning into a sermon about credit. Stop. I'm getting on tangent here. This is not about that. The point with their question is, uh, under it all, how much are you worth? You look like a normal person, but you pull out a wallet. Ooh, Capital One card. That guy, that girl, she can, he can spend some money. I'd like to suggest a Christian equivalent to that, which is behind me here. Um, what's under your tent? Because we're going to study and look at the life of Achan today as we go through the book of Joshua. And he was hiding all sorts of stuff under his tent. Pretty stuff, valuable stuff, money stuff, robe stuff, illegal stuff against the law that had been prescribed by Joshua. But the tent looked normal, and he looked like a normal guy. You couldn't tell actually what was under the tent until God kind of brought it out into the light. And that's how it is with us and with our wealth. People can have appearance of wealth and be overextending themselves, and we as Christians can have an appearance that our tent is all in order. It's like, yeah, but what's really underneath it? And God actually draws a line in the sand for the nation of Israel and says, until you figure out what's buried under your tent and clean it out, we actually can't go any further forward. 
And we're in this transition time in our church. I'm talking about the end of the year here in a microcosm, but also our, our move in big. Like we're at a point in time where I think it makes perfect sense for us to like dig down a little bit under our tents and just make sure that everything is clean. Because there will come a point where God will not bring us forward if all we're doing is looking nice on the outside of the tents. And Aiken's story has impact on all the people around him. And that's kind of how it is for us as well. And so the, this sermon is about, like, who are we under it all? But it's not going to go in the direction that you might think where we can get to the end of it so we can all feel ashamed of ourselves and guilty about it. I'm not going there. That's not, I think, where the Bible takes it. Where I'm going is, I pray that every single one of us have someone close enough to ourselves, a Christian brother or sister, that we trust enough that we can just be honest with. No more, no less. I don't think the story of Achan is a guilt-producing, be embarrassed, be ashamed, be afraid, hide your sins. I think it's, this guy wasn't open and honest, and it caught up with him. And sometimes we just need to be honest. Michelle and I have been talking lately about so many things happening in our lives with church in the center and our home and our kids and all sorts of things, just feeling overwhelmed. And so we could leave overwhelmed buried under our tent. <laughs> and the tent might look good. And we managed to show up dressed on Sundays. And so like, okay, things must be fine. Like, but under the tent, it's like cluttered. <laughs> and under the tent, it's exhausting. And under the tent, it's overwhelmed. Who knows us well enough to dig in? To be like, can I come visit the tent? Do you mind if we like push some stuff to the side? Like, ooh, that overwhelmed. <laughs> That's taking up a lot of your tent, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of ugly. Can we get that thing out of here? Can we clean house? And that's not about guilt. That's about friendship. That's about church. That's about community. There's a, there's a great quote. Uh, I was going to read it at the end. I can't resist. I got to read it right now. It's by Bonhoeffer. He wrote this book called Life Together talking about what Christian community is. Will you listen to this quote? I might read it six or seven times in a row just to make sure we all get it. I don't know. Just absorb, please. Bonhoeffer wrote, sin demands to have a man or woman by themselves, like away. Sin demands that. You sin and instantly, Guard of Eden stuff, whoop, cover up, hide, right? We sin, we withdraw, always. This is what sin does. But that's not us. That, that's sin. Sin's crouching at our door, right? And, but instead of feeling like, ah, oh, sin got me again, we feel shame. Ownership of that. Yeah, we're ownership of a peace, but recognize what sin does and fight against letting it have its way. This is where friends and community come in. Here's the rest of the quote. I'll stop going on tangents, maybe. Sin demands to have a person by himself. It withdraws them from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over them. And the more deeply they become involved in it, the more disastrous the isolation. Sin demands to have a man or woman by themselves. It withdraws them from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over them. And the more deeply they become involved in it, the more disastrous will be their isolation. This is just, we know this. This is how it works. So the key, the clue, the, the, the beautiful solution to that is to not let ourselves be alone. And this doesn't mean I'm going to ask us all to take a number and come and stand up here on a Sunday morning, confess all our deepest and darkest so that we can clear out our tents. 
I actually think that that would be disastrous in its own way. You need a partner. You need a, a heart, a soul mate. And it can be your spouse in some cases, but in other cases it can't. If you're a man, you need a man to talk to that can relate with things that you're going through. If you're a woman, you need a woman to talk to. If you're a teen, you probably need a teen to talk. Like, find someone who can be with you as peers as Christ leads both of you to something greater than just the nice-looking tent on the outside and a bunch of junk buried underneath. Because the biggest lie that Satan wants us to believe is that our sins are only going to affect us. And it's just not true. It's not true. Our sins affect everything. And at some point, we're going to get to a wall. I'm like, I need, I got to get past it. And God's like, we got to clean out the tent. But don't do it alone. And don't leave it. Find someone who can get the dustpan and broom. And get to work in that. You know, Aiken gets kind of a bad rap. He's almost sort of like a poster child for sneaky, sinful behavior. And then everybody gets punished. Wrath of God kind of stuff. But it's, only, it's the only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible so in my mind, his biggest mistake gets publicity, but that does not mean that he lived this like horrible, wicked life. I don't actually think Aiken was this long time awful sinner who just got caught in this moment. You know why I think that? Because we, didn't we just read that all the people from the former generation that sinned, they died in the wilderness. They didn't make it to this point. So Aiken made it to this point, which means he wasn't of the older generation, he didn't die for the sins of doubting God in the wilderness. He made it. And then as soon as they came across the river, every male was circumcised. So Achan was circumcised. And everybody observed the Passover. So everybody got right with God. And then they went into Jericho and they saw God throw down the city walls and the angels pull those stones apart and they walked right. And it's like Achan was in that. Achan's with the good. But he just got tempted and fell. And that sounds like me to me. <laughs> that sounds like you to me. That sounds like people, not just Aiken. I don't want to label him. It's just an incident in his life. And I'm sorry we can't hear all the wonderful things that he did with the Lord. But we certainly get to learn from this massive mistake of his. Uh, because we pursue the Lord. And then sometimes we fail. Sometimes we do the same exact things that Aiken did. So his story is, is a model to learn from. Um, but we get to turn to Christ. And so we're going to put the gospel into Aiken's story to really make it apply to us. Let, let's read it together. and We'll stop as we go through. It's Joshua chapter 7. Hopefully I've painted enough of the picture for you to see kind of where we're going and to be thinking about... Uh, how much God cares about sin, it still does matter. Yeah, I know Jesus, yeah, I know the cross, but God still hates sin. It still gets judged. It's just Jesus that's taking every punishment every time we sin. Like, it still matters. And in our world, we say, grace, and it's fine, and it's good. We, we pendulum too far to not care about it. Well, this story, if anything... This is the parallel to Ananias and Sapphira from the New Testament, right? Lie to God, steal from God, struck dead. But that's after Jesus. So careful that we don't just put God's anger against sin as like an Old Testament kind of wrath of God thing. No, it's just God. God hates, he can't abide by sin. He can't be in his presence. He's a just God. So we need to bring in Christ and his penalty. Um, let's see what it looks like without Christ, before Christ. Joshua 7. So... 
the people of Israel, right after Jericho, mind you, right on the heels, immediately after seeing the great thing that God did, the people of Israel broke faith in regarding or in regards to the things that were devoted to destruction. Or, or we read in one of the other translations, the things that were under the ban. Everything in Jericho was under a ban. You were not allowed to take it because they were not taking over Jericho so every Israelite could just get rich. This is not a, a rape and plunder and pillage so that Israel can be rich. This is God executing his judgment on a wicked nation saying, don't take anything. This is not for you to take. Put the gold and silver in the treasury to God because God is winning this battle, but just burn everything else. Let it all go. Don't be corrupted. Don't want the stuff that's in the world. So that was last week's message, the things devoted to the ban, um, and Israel breaks that covenant with the Lord. How? It says, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So here's that first point. <laughs> It's the biggest lie to say that our sin doesn't affect others because Achan sinned and then says the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. There are times where our family can't move forward as a family because one of us really just needs to get right with the Lord. There are times in churches where the church can't move forward because some of us need to just like get things straight with the Lord. There are times where God's doing something. It's like, we're going to put on the brakes here because we have to settle some business. Don't look good on the outside and wear my name God could say, and still act this way. Clean out the tent. So the anger of the Lord burns against all the people of Israel. This is how. This is how God's anger showed itself. Joshua sent men from Jericho to the next city of Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went out and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up. But let only about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So here you have Joshua taking the advice of spies. It doesn't say he consults the Lord. That's the leadership mistake that's joined with the coveting and stealing sin. And it's what results in the ultimate downfall. Right? So the spies say, it's easy. We just took over Jericho. There's only a couple of dudes up there. Let's go. Few people. So verse 4 says, So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled. They fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the desert. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Do you know this is the only battle where lives are recorded as being lost in the book of Joshua? How amazing is that? How amazing is it? Every battle should be battle where lives are recorded that are lost. But here it's because of a lack of faithfulness to God that lives are lost. And that's the pattern that we follow as well. It's our sin that causes death. It's not God's plan, no matter how audacious, you know, conquering a whole promised land might be. This is what cost their lives. So they're struck down, 36 die. Uh, and everyone then is afraid. So now you have fear getting in, which cripples the nation. So then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell down on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, and he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? I wish that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. 
Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? And we were routed, we ran, we had to flee. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they'll surround us and they'll cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua is letting fear take over. Because remember, this is exactly <laughs> what the Israelites said. Why did we come out of Egypt? It was easier there. And Joshua's like, no, we're with the Lord. <laughs> and here he's like, why did we just stay on the other side of the Jordan? Why over here? It's getting scary. And because it's people. Joshua's not perfect. We're not perfect. So he sees the thing that he's afraid of and it gets the better of him. But he does one really wise thing here at the end. He says, what will you do for your great name, Lord? He doesn't ask God for his help because he feels like he deserves it or he's worth it or they have any righteousness to boast on. God, for your great name, you're about to do this beautiful thing and powerful thing. Please, can you make your name not crumble in reputation? He appeals to God's great name. We read about this last week as well. Again, these things all tie together because we're just reading through one big long history book. But in Deuteronomy 9, Moses says the same exact sort of thing. Uh, God says, I didn't pick you, Israel, because of your righteousness. You're actually a really stubborn people. I picked you because the wickedness in this land was so great. I need someone to execute my judgment and my justice so that I can be proven to be a just God who doesn't let sin just go. So here, sin comes into the camp, actually corrupts Achan, and they suffer the same fate as them. So it's not just about being within the family of God, say it that way. It's about living as the family of God. As the people of God, not all, like Paul says in Romans, like not all Jews are truly Jews, and not all church folk are truly saved. There's that kind of concept of we need to show it with our heart. So Achan here steps in. We find out why. So Joshua still doesn't know why they lost the battle. God said go. He went. Should be working. Work with Jericho. Not working now. We're like troubleshooting now. Okay. The Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And they have taken some of the devoted things. The things devoted to destruction. The things under the ban. And they have stolen. And they have lied. And put them among their own belongings. We can stop there for a second. So first, they disobeyed what God just said. Then that led to them stealing stuff. Then it led to them lying. Then it led to them falling on their faces. Like, that's how sin works. The little sin leads to the second sin, which leads to the bigger sin. And then all of a sudden, you're in sin soup. It's everywhere, and it's just rippling outward. Um, and God just lays it out. He says, this is what happened. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs, you know, they, they flee before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. So Israel took in the things of the world and so therefore then is suffering the same fate as the world. They need to get it out. God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you, the things devoted to destruction. So get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves, so purify yourselves, get ready, pray yourselves up, clean yourselves up for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things, corrupt things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I feel like this is like a recipe for our lives. Like we're having trouble standing secure. It's because we know that we're shaky. We need security. We don't need perfection. Christ takes that for us, but we need security. And it's so hard to be bold when you know what's hidden under your tent. It's so hard to be like passionate about God when you're feeling like conflicted within ourselves. 
That's why it's a community thing and the whole nation is meant to be part of the solution just as the whole nation suffered the penalty of it. All right, so the uh, Lord gives instructions to Joshua how to figure this out. Um, so in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. Everyone, tribe by tribe, comes forward. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. So they're, they're either rolling some sort of dice, they're pulling, drawing some kind of straw. There's some sort, there was a few different ways that the, the Jews chose things randomly to allow God to be the one making the choice. It doesn't specify which one it is here. But by lot, a tribe will be chosen. And then all the clans in that tribe shall come forward. We continue on. It says, And the clan that the Lord takes, again by lot, shall come near by household. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning. He brought Israel near, tribe by tribe. And, and he's, he's picking straws, however you want to imagine it in your mind. He's flipping a coin, right? He's figuring out one by one which it is. And he brought near the clans, I uh, said the tribe of Judah was taken. Okay, so this person is in this tribe. Then he brought near all the clans of Judah and one by one found that the clan of Zerahites was chosen. And then he brought near the clan of Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken, and he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was selected, was chosen. And Joshua doesn't even ask him if he's guilty. <laughs> he's so confident in God's command, in this random chance selection of person, of one man within the entire nation of Israel. He's so confident that he doesn't even ask if. It's just like, this is the person. This is who God has revealed. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him. And now tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Put those two thoughts in your mind together because we're going to go back to that in just a minute. Praise God and do not hide it. Praise God. Tell me what you have done. Give glory to God and praise God. Those two thoughts are meant to be hand in glove, merged, Two sides, same coin, same word, in fact, as we're going to see. It's just fascinating there. Glory to God, do not hide. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord. And what must it have been like for him waiting? He knows what he's done, but he doesn't know if he maybe is the only guy or are there lots of people. But he's just waiting and all of a sudden it's his family. It's his grandfather. It's him. Like, what a crushing, suspenseful, awful feeling because he knows the penalty that was prescribed. Is it going to fall on me? Am I going to get away with it? So he fesses up there in front of Joshua, in front of everyone. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar, a Babylonian cloak, famous and intricate and very wealthy, um, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them. Man, I just wanted them, he says. That's what coveting is. I just wanted them. So I just took them. I wanted it so much that I took them. I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I just, I wanted them so much. They were right there. Everything's going to get burned. Why are we going to burn up this beautiful cloak? All this money is going to go into this. So much more gold and silver going into the treasury. I just wanted that and it was right there. And I just 
took it. So he's honest now. He gets to honesty. And he said, see, go and see if you could say it that way. See, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver buried underneath. So they took him out of the tent and brought him to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down um, before, the, uh, before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Now, Achor is a pun on Achan. It was named Achor. It means trouble. This valley of distress, this valley of trouble. And this is where Achan receives and his whole family receives God's judgment. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us, Achor, on us? The Lord brings trouble upon you, Achan, today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. And then they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Stoning and fire as God prescribed. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord relented from his burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. We talked last week about how it like, feels so harsh, the judgment of God, when he executes it upon all sorts of people all at a time. And if there's anyone thought, maybe I could pull from that to tie in here just to touch on it again. Uh, ultimately, we all come face to face with God and we'll have his judgment for righteousness or wickedness, and then Christ either standing by our side to pay or not. So when people's lives end early, um, we wonder, should they have had a longer life? Could they have had a longer life? Was God just? Uh, God's welcome to do and execute His justice at any time. Our lives can be short. Our lives can be long. It's how we live them. And so here, lives are cut short. God brings His justice soon. But we must not think that if we live nice, long lives, then we get away with anything. Ultimately, this same encounter with God, if Christ is not with us, is what we all face. So it seems abrupt, but it's actually the end result of everyone's life. And it's, it's good for us to keep that in mind. We need Jesus standing by our side or we won't make it past Judgment Day either. Do you notice the two things that Achan takes? I think they bear focusing on. He takes the cloak, something he wanted for himself, and he takes silver and gold, which was supposed to go into the treasury of God. He steals for his own benefit, and he steals from God. I think the cloak is such a fascinating one because he probably couldn't wear it. Everybody would see him wearing a cloak. That's a really fancy Babylonian cloak you got there, Aiken. <laughs> so he just needed to have it, even though he couldn't use it, even though he had to hide it. Just wanted it so badly. Maybe his family didn't even know. Is he hiding from his family just because he wants? Well, that's what desire does. And desire then leads us to steal or take what we want. It leads us to lie about it, to cover it up, to hide it. But it's not even ever benefiting us. It's just like this lure of something. So we can say, take half of our sins. Half of our sins are things that we want for ourselves. And we just do what we want without any regards for what's going to come next. The other things he took were things that were supposed to go to God. And we do this too. God, I promise you, if you help me out of this situation, I will pray every day. I commit to you my prayers. But then 
you know, the series we're watching on Netflix is really good. So we just watch a couple more. I'm really tired in the morning. We've got to get to work on time. God, I got you tomorrow. And we steal back some of that time that we said we'll give him. All right, God, we're going to worship on Sunday mornings, but then life gets busy and we travel on weekends. And, oh, I was tired this day. And we take back some of that time. All right, God, I'm going to set aside this amount of money each month because I feel like I want to trust you with my finances. I appreciate you giving it to me. But then, like, an extra mortgage payment comes in and the car breaks down. There isn't enough money. It's like, all right, God, well, I'm just going to take this particular silver and gold back to use it over here because you know that I need it. Or about our homes for hospitality. God, please give me a new home with a nice big backyard so I can have people over to it. And then like years go by in the new home and no one's ever been to your house. Like you're taking back the yard that God gave you for his purpose and just using it for yourself. All right, God, I promise I'm going to teach my kids your word and we're going to pray together in those things. And oh, But life's busy. We're, we have different schedules. My kids have sports and I work late and the wife leaves the house early. And so we haven't gotten around to that. So the things devoted to the Lord get taken back to be used on ourselves. And ultimately, they just get stuck in the dirt under our tent. They're not like, did we really need that extra half an hour of sleep in the morning? Do we really need our own backyard for us every day of every week, for every month, for every year? No. So this is our sin too. Achan is such a great model. And I don't want to vilify him. I think he was a righteous young man who when he was confronted with temptation, he was on his own. I don't think anybody knew about the cloak. Otherwise, his family probably would have outed him so that they wouldn't have to suffer the same punishment. They don't. What if Achan had a soul mate, a brother? a friend who he could be open with and say, this is what's under my tent. And his friend's like, dude, we got to get rid of that stuff. It's going to kill you. We think our, th- our sins only affect us. Is it really possible that if we struggle with drinking too much, that we're just going to continue to drink too much and it's going to have no effect on anyone around us? that it's never going to impact the conflicts we'll have, they'll never be a little bit more heated because we were a little bit under the influence, that it's never going to affect our kids, we have a little less motivation when we're a little more tired after having a little bit too much fun. Are our thoughts never going to be more clouded when we try to pray and sit and listen to the Lord? If that's kind of buried under that tent, do we really think it's about us? But what if, if that's where we're standing, what if there's a soul sister and a soul brother, a soul mate, a partner that's like, can we just like clean that stuff out? Can we get rid of that? Because we can. Are you willing? Joshua says, give glory to God, Aiken. Be honest. Give glory to God, Aiken. Just be honest. This brings us to what I thought was the most fascinating part of my research into Aiken's life. And I want to make sure I say this right. Please don't miss this. The word for confessing to one another, which is kind of what we're talking about, right? Like Aiken confessed. That word in both the Greek and the New Testament, we hear confess your sins to the Lord. He is righteous and just will forgive us all our sins, right? Confess. Confess your sins one to another and the prayer of faith will make a person well. Like confess that word means both confess your sins, and praise God. Same word. Like, what? What What does that mean? Is confessing praise? Here's all the junk in my life. Wasn't that awesome? 
Don't we feel like praising God? Or if we're in the, let's praise God, are we in the mindset to say, like, here's the junk? From a biblical perspective, praising God and confessing our sins are the same exact thing. And did you notice that's what God's, or Joshua said to Achan? He didn't say, confess your sins. He came up and he said, give glory to God, praise the Lord, be honest. Because confessing our sins and praising God are ultimately the same thing. They're just speaking the truth. Every time we praise God, we're just being honest about who He is. It's just honesty. Praise is honesty. And every time we confess our sins and say, hey, this is buried under our tent, it's not supposed to necessarily be this shame-filled, hide my head on the woe is me. It's just honesty. I got junk in the tent and it's heavy. It's hard to move. It's hard to clean out. Can you help me get it out? So when you come together with a brother or a sister and say, God is good, that's speaking truth. You are confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. You're confessing that God is good. You are stating it. The word actually in the Greek uh, means saying the same thing. Homologia. Saying the same thing. So you get together with someone and you agree God is good. Does any of our sin change whether God's good? Nobody knows that answer? Does any of our sin change whether God is good? No. Right. Does God's goodness prove that we'll never sin? No. So it's simultaneous honesty about who God is and who we are. And that's what we need in marriages. That's what we need in Christian friends. That's what you need between yourself and your pastor and elders. That's what you need between yourself and your therapist. That's what you need between yourself and your missional community, your small group of friends. That's what you need with an accountability or a prayer partner. Just honesty. That's all we need. You know, the word in Hebrew, like I said, it's the same thing in both, is yada. It means I know something, I experience something, and yada, praise God, and yada, confess our sins. Like, how cool is that? I think, as I began to think about this more and more, I think the, the history of our particular region in the world being so closely aligned with Catholicism has limited our minds to what confession is to be like, this is where you say your bad stuff to someone and then you like get it out of you. So if I'm going to confess my sins to my brother or my sister, like, it feels like oh, I'm low, I'm dirty. But what if we get to be honest? Using the example of being overwhelmed. And we can all relate to that at some seasons. Some of us, our entire lives have been overwhelming for like years. For no one to know that is a sort of isolation that removes you from community. Because it's really hard to just smile and be normal with people when you're feeling burnt out on the inside. And so then stuff gets hidden under the tent. But it's not necessarily egregious, caustic, corrupting sin. It could be lack of hope. It could be joy. What if we could just be known? And yada is the, the, the biblical word for you know, knowing someone biblically. Adam knew Eve and then had a child. Like, What if we could be known to that level? It doesn't just mean that you have someone who can like, keep all your secrets. It means someone who knows your joys and your loves and your strengths, who's with you in them. And so I see in Achan someone who didn't have that. Have that. And I see in Christ a Jesus who's saying, you need church, you need body of Christ, you need fellowship. Confess your sins to one another. Praise God for who he is. Be honest about who we are for better or for worse. And be together in it. It's a community sort of thing. 
You know, we need to find a Joshua or find a partner before we have to stand in front of God and face judgment. We need to find a Jesus to stand next to us who's closer than a brother and say, this is where I'm at, honestly, so things can be uprooted. Um, When we confess something, we admit it. If we profess something, we say it out loud. And so both of these things have to happen. There must be confession, and then there has to be partnership so that there can be profession. Uh, And it must be simultaneous with praise. You know, I think, what if someone, uh, uh, you have a conversation with someone of this upcoming week, and you say to them, this is something that's in my tent. For better or for worse, it just is. It's part of my life right now. And what if they said, thank you for that honesty, and isn't God great? Instead of, oh, well... That's rough. Or instead of just focusing on the sin, which so easily ensnares all of us, but recognizing as being God, it's truthful to say God is good, and it's truthful to say we are weak. And when you put those together, you get the right form of confess your sins to one another so that you may be saved. This is a challenge I would love to give to each one of you. That you would find someone and ask them, not what's in their wallet, who cares how much spending power they have and which cards they use, um, but what's in your tent. And it's okay in that moment to not have to be like, I've actually heard, I didn't grow up in Catholicism, but I've heard that for people going to confession, which is part of the sacraments, the way the Catholic Church teaches it, um, they kind of like have to have something. So if you don't have something bad, then make something up so that you can say something so you can be absolved. And little kids, I remember someone saying, when I was a little kid, I remember going to first confession and confessing to the priest that I had committed adultery. He's like, I didn't even know what that meant, but I had heard it and it was a bad thing and I needed something to say, but I didn't even know like what sins were. So like this little kid confessing adultery to the priest like don't make it up if someone says what's under your tent and you're like actually the tent's looking good these days yeah there's like cobwebs but there's no major stuff in there that are just junk been doing cleaning praise god it's just honesty we don't need to come up with how bad we are and compete with each other for our failings god knows and it's okay to be good it's okay to just be good but that honesty allows us to be good or not good And it really needs a partner in faith. It needs someone who you trust, a friend who sticks closer than a brother or sister. That that we need that freedom. I wish Aiken had that. And I feel for us, we need that. And that always can't be me, although I'm willing for it to be me for and with anyone. But it can't be like one pastor who's the confessor or whatever the right way is to say that for a whole group of people. It needs to be friends. I'm trying to break down this concept of go confess to the priest. be, Be a believer in Christ with someone else that believes in Christ and then just talk about tents. Talk about furnishings in the tent. How beautiful our tents could be. Dream about the tents the way they will be one day when Christ completes and finishes some of this cleaning that he's doing in our lives. That's the joy, that's the hope, because Jesus is there when our stuff gets laid out in front of God. We do not die for it as long as Jesus says, I've got this. But we do pay for each one of them. We're liable 
for destruction because of every one of these things. And Jesus just has to stand there next to us in, in front of God and say, I take that penalty. I take that penalty. I take that penalty. I take that penalty. So we're not in fear if we trust God of, uh, of the shame and, and ultimate you know, destruction and the wrath of God. Not that way. But just the like, lostness and the isolation, the depravity, the way sin gets worse and worse, and one seed, sin leads to another, which leads to so many, and then we hide. Like, that's not the kingdom that I want to experience here on earth while I'm waiting for the real deal, 100% kingdom in God's presence. I want to experience known, being known. And I want to speak to you. And if I say, oh man, I'm really struggling with that. I don't want to get the eye rolls back from you. Like, whoa, Pastor Dave struggles from that. Like, why? Aiken, 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 Aiken. Like, this is us. We're people with Christ. And so I think Aiken's story is actually not depressing. <laughs> I actually think it's wonderful. I love this story, and I hope that we can walk away from this thinking about what it means to be honest, not merely what it means to be ashamed. Satan would love to take all of our problems and weaknesses and twist them so that they don't produce life. But what if we give them to the Lord, walk through them together, and they become an excuse for praising God and giving Him glory. Ah, that's my prayer for us as a church. So I would like to talk about it together. We've got a few minutes here for the next five minutes or so. Could I ask us to just think about these things together? This isn't probably the forum to say, here's everything that's under my tent. I'm not asking for that. That's where you need to find a person um, that you trust and that knows you and that will pray with you. But can we talk about these things together? What things struck you? Um, maybe if you have a person that's come to mind that you want to reach out to this week, you could share that. Or maybe if something in Aiken relates to you, it's like, you know what? I, I get that point. I feel it. I'd like to take a few minutes and be together instead of talking about sharing with one another, and then stay isolated at the end. So, five minutes, we will close with communion and a song in just a moment. Let's share some thoughts together.